Hi there and welcome. The First Christian Church podcast ministry features the teaching and preaching of the First Christian Church in downtown Roseburg, Oregon. Here's today's message. We're in Acts chapter 7 this morning, Acts chapter 7. We're continuing the story uh, of the life and times of one Stephen. Yesterday afternoon, um, my, uh, my wife and my brother who's in town had the chance to walk through the Umco Valley Arts Festival. How many of you have done that in the last couple of days? Um, okay, so me and my brothers and my sister are waving their hands. Um, it is an awesome, awesome event. We, uh, we had one of our friends and um, their youngest was in the hula uh, dance stuff. I've never sat through such a program. The music was so calming. I was about falling asleep by the end of uh, this event. But as we were walking around, the Umco Valley Arts Festival kind of is like this um, opportunity where they have all these different pop-up tents and different people who have made things get to build, uh, bring their items and, uh, and sell them to the community. So things that they have made, they've crafted, they're built, they've sewn, they've quilted, they've forged, um, that they've baked, and they get to sell them to the community. And so at first glance, as you look around and uh, you might see a piece of art or jewelry or clothing, and what I like to do, especially with art, with things that are painted, with things that are forged, I like to think, I wonder what that costs, right? You know, because I don't get the opportunity to do that very often. So I wonder, and so in my mind, I'll start playing the game, I wonder what this costs. And uh, when I used to do this uh, for the very first time, I remember thinking, boy, everything's really expensive. Because you don't take into the cost of the time it takes to learn the trade. We don't think of the time it takes to master a trade, to get good at it. And so uh, we know the cost of everything, and yet as a society, sometimes we don't know the value of things. I was thinking about cost and value as we were walking home last night, and I thought to myself, we know the cost of everything and the value of nothing sometimes, so what does it cost you to live your life? And what value does your life have? Scripture reminds us this way in James. He says this, how do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? Your life is like the morning fog. It's here for a little while, and then it's gone. And so what does it cost to live our life? What value does our life have when it's all said and done? Today we're looking at the martyrdom of Stephen, and we're going to pick it up in verse 51 as we get started today, where Stephen declares, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. That's quite a verse to begin a Sunday morning with. You stiff-necked people, you uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Stephen's been accused of what? Blasphemy, right? This is this Bible word that means you're speaking something that goes completely contrary to what we believe. It's the act or offense of speaking sacrilegiously about God or sacred things. It's profane talk against God. So he's been accused of of speaking blasphemous things about God, about Moses, about the Torah, about the temple. 
And so chapter 7 is devoted to Stephen's sermon, his defense. And he remember how he begins his defense. He begins it with these words, fathers and brothers, right? He starts with common ground. He builds the case for his defense. But in doing so, he finds common ground with those he's talking about. And he starts with this common ground as he shared with the accusers. But as he's delivering his defense, we come to verse 51, where he now begins to share and declare the truth. The truth about who God is, the truth about who they are, and the truth about they, how they had rejected God. If you're following in our notes, while it is vital that we defend our faith by sharing the common ground we have, our relationship should always lead to a declaration of truth about who Jesus is. We do no favors by allowing people to wallow in the falsehoods for the sake of preserving relationships. Now hear me, last week we talked about how important it is to establish common ground when we defend our faith, and I stand by that. But at some point, our lives should live out the truth of who Jesus is. Stephen continues in verse 52, and he says this, "'Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute?' In other words, you had people come up all through history, and every single time you rejected him. You rejected Moses when he first came on. You reflect, uh, uh, refused and rejected Joseph, uh, David, all of these pillars of our faith. At one time, you rejected, and what he's saying to them is, so you do reject Christ. He says this, which of the followers did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. Whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. You can kind of imagine the angry whispering among the council now as Stephen's history lessons begin to take a turn. He wasn't preaching blasphemy. He was simply warning against any implied restrictions of God in the temple. They began to play a higher view on Moses than God. They put a higher view on the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, than God. They put a higher view on the temple than God. And so when it came time to embrace God's son, Jesus Christ, because they had elevated Moses so high, because they had elevated the Torah so high, because they elevated the temple, all of their traditions so high, Jesus Christ was no match for their traditions. Stephen saw this and knew they were rejecting the Holy One. And he takes the sharp knife of the wood and word and rips up the sins of the people, laying open the inward parts of their heart, the secrets of their soul. Stephen Strong's word towards the Jewish leadership was reminding them and us that oftentimes those who do not learn history are doomed to repeat it. You ever see your children start making decisions that you remember making and you remember how they might have turned out and yet at some point we kind of have to let that generation make those mistakes. Throughout Israel's history there were a number of instances when God's people re reacted to God's message and messengers harshly and so chapter 7 begins with the high priest asking Stephen directly about these accusations and now he's defending his faith and in the verse we just read he basically lays out for them their current standing number one you are stiff-necked this means 
you are stubborn. You're unwilling to bend. You're unwilling to consider an alternative point of view. You're unwilling to rethink things. You are stiff-necked. How many of you can identify from time to time in your life you might be a little stiff-necked? How many of you, it's the person next to you? Just, there we go, stop pointing. Right? He's calling them as a group of people stiff-necked. In other words, unwilling to bend, stoic, unwilling to change. He also calls them uncircumcised in heart and ears. Now, we don't understand this kind of imagery because we don't talk like this, but what he's saying to them is this. They were spiritually dead. They had not yet identified with Christ with their heart and their ears. And then he also said, you're always rejecting or opposing the Holy Spirit. You're always rubbing against this this new gift to us, this new advocate, this new comforter in our lives, you are opposing the Holy Spirit. That voice inside of you that leads you towards compassion, that leads you towards grace, that leads you towards repentance. For some reason, you've been stiff-necked, you've been unwilling to change or to bend, you have been uncircumcised in heart and ears. In other words, you're not willing or able to be spiritual about these things, and so you are ending up being opposed and rejecting the Holy Spirit's voice in your life. And so Stephen's point is this, as Israel was in his history, so are you today. God gave you the law, but you have not kept it. And it must have offended the council. Stephen's message was true, it was accurate, and God would use Stephen's voice, his life, and his impending death to showcase to them the error of their ways. Now, one of the things that Stephen was asking them to consider is this, the gospel of Jesus Christ proclaims that there is no such thing as being an outsider anymore. The gospel's for everyone. So the way he was asking them to consider it is this. Moses was important. The Torah was important. The temple was important. But we now have a new covenant with our risen Lord and Savior. And it's not just for us anymore. It's for everyone. Aren't you glad that the gospel is for outsiders? There's no such thing as an outsider anymore. We're all included. Now, here's the thing. You may not feel like you are included, but you are. And our emotions may lie to us, but you are included in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, the whole idea behind a permanent stationary temple was this. God's presence is right here. And in order to get to God, you must come here. So the Jewish people were used to the temple being the epicenter of their faith. In fact, if you wanted to get to God, you had to come to the temple. Now this is how they reacted when they heard these things. When they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. I believe the King James Version says they gnashed their teeth at him. The idea of gnashing at him with their teeth can't help but remind us of the imagery God uses to describe hell. Uh, Seven different times in scripture, Jesus describes hell as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
Now, understand these men were successful. They were prominent. They appeared to be religious. They were knowledgeable. They were um, they, they knew the traditions of the day, and yet they were rejecting God and associating themselves with this idea of being opposed to the Holy Spirit. They began grinding or uh, gnashing their teeth before Stephen finished his sermon. And all they could do in their frenzy was to get angry. I think Stephen's response here is so enlightening here. So here he is. He is sharing common ground with them. He gets to the point where he declares who Jesus is and what he has done, but also shares the truth about their posture towards Jesus. And in that moment, they're enraged. They are gnashing their teeth. Verse 55, his response. But he, full of the Holy Spirit. The, the, the alternative to being full of the Holy Spirit is to be full of yourself, right? He, full of the Holy Spirit, he gazes into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. You see the contrast in behavior here? You see uh, the crowd is angry, they're enraged at hearing this, uh, this declaration about who Jesus is, hearing this declaration about uh, where they are in relationship to the Holy Spirit. They're enraged, they're gnashing their teeth, they are working themselves up into a frenzy. And Stephen's response, because he's full of the Holy Spirit, is to pray in this moment. There's a calm there. There's a great contrast of behavior. And the fact that Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit shows the source of his courage, wisdom, and power in preaching. And for Stephen, don't miss this, prayer became the bridge between panic and peace. Prayer became the bridge between panic and peace. There's, there's just going to be moments in our life where panic sets in where uh, the fear of what's happening, the anxiety, the cares, the uh, pressures of the day uh, are so weighted down upon you that panic settles in. And we wonder how we get from panic to peace. How do we get that peace that, that passes all understanding? In other words, that peace that doesn't make sense, that it's hard to articulate, that shouldn't be possible. How do we get from panic to peace? It's the bridge of prayer. It's the act of allowing ourselves to acknowledge there, is, uh, there are things out of control. Uh, someone said to me uh, on the way to church, yes, uh, last Sunday, uh, right before church, someone said, Daniel, uh, I was asking about the last two or three weeks of their life, and they have some stuff going on, right? Some health stuff, some other stuff. And they said, well, Daniel, I know God doesn't give us more than we can handle. And in that moment, I said, well, sure he does. How many of you have been at a point in your life where life has thrown you way more than you can handle, right? I mean, time and time again in our life, you think, about, uh, you think about children who have gone through abuse at a young age. Sure, they have 
received way more than they can or should be able to handle. You think about, uh, you think about those who are, who are just marginalized and, and, uh, and don't have all the opportunities that others have. Uh, you think about those who are uh, financially just behind the eight ball and, and the bills outnumber uh, their income and the income isn't even all that steady. Sure, you get way more than you can handle. The idea is not that life doesn't give you more than you can handle. It's that's the reason we have God. That is the reason we acknowledge on a daily basis, boy, I cannot do this alone, Lord. In fact, if I'd be honest with you, I think, I, I think you gave me a little too much today. And so in this moment, I'm acknowledging that I cannot do this on my own. See, the idea that life, uh, uh, that, that uh, God doesn't give you any more than you can handle kind of comes with the impression that you can go through life on your own. And it's this idea that prayer becomes this bridge is is acknowledging the place that you are in life where because life has given us way more than we can handle, prayer becomes the bridge between panic and peace. Here in this moment, he's outnumbered, he's outmanned, and yet there's a peace that comes. I think some of us might need to read Philippians 4 this week and read it every single day this week. And think about rejoicing in the Lord. Think about in every circumstance, we're going to give thanks. Thinking about that, uh, we're going to be content with whatever we have. We're going to think about these things, these eight or nine uh, attributes of thinking. We're going to do these things. And embedded in, in Philippians chapter 4 is this idea that we're going to bring everything to God in prayer and not be uh, anxious for anything. Because prayer becomes that bridge between panic and peace. Now, it's difficult to unpack exactly what uh, Stephen saw here. It's significant, I think, to note that Jesus is standing in this position. Most of the time in the New Testament, after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, uh, the imagery that the New Testament writers use is that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God. But here he says, behold, I see the heavens opened, verse 56, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. As opposed to the more common description of him standing, he's, of sitting, he's standing. And I believe perhaps it means he is standing, witnessing before God about the one who has witnessed for him on earth. Uh, scripture tells us that uh, whoever confesses Jesus before men, him will Jesus also confessed before the Father who is in heaven. We read on in verse 57. It says this, They cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. This is a mob scene. There's nothing that's orderly about this anymore. It's interesting because in the last few chapters, we've seen orderly opposition to the gospel. We've seen the council uh, throw Peter and John in jail for the night, which was the right thing to do so that none of their emotions could get out of their hand. And the next morning they decided to try him and they had this conversation and they gave him, they gave him a deal or whether or not to be uh, released or persecuted even further. But here we see there is a mob mentality that is taking over the council. They cried out with a loud voice. They stopped their ears and they rushed together at him. Verse 58, they cast him out of the city 
and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garment at the feet of a young man named Saul. When Stephen declared that Jesus was standing at the right hand of God, he evoked the name of the one they were guilty of crucifying. They evoked the name of the one who was greater than Moses, who was greater than the Torah, who was greater than the temple. And in that moment, their fury was out of hand. And so they rushed towards him quickly, violently together. All through the account of Stephen, we've seen these similarities with his life and death to the life and death of Jesus Christ. When Jesus, before the same body of men, declared that he would one day sit at the right hand of God, they had the same rejection and sealed his death as a blasphemer. Now the reaction seems extreme, but it's typical of those who would reject Jesus. They wailed in agony there covered their ears at the revelation of who Jesus is. The Bible says they, uh, the ancient Greek word used in this scene is the word hormao. It's the word used to describe a mad rush of the herd of swine in the gospel. You know the story. There's a man uh, who, was, uh, who was taken over by demons and when Jesus rushed to his age in Mark chapter 5, uh, he cast out those demons into a herd of pigs. And those pigs, uh, under the control of those demons, uh, wound up in a frenzy and tossed themselves off of a cliff. This is the same scene that Luke is describing. It's an out-of-control mob rushing at Stephen. Now, the extent of their rage shown by the execution of Stephen was, Stephen was done without regard to the Roman law. According to Jewish custom, there would need to be a confession from the criminal. Stephen proclaiming Jesus at the right hand of God was that confession. They would then strip the criminal from their clothing. So they would strip the criminal before their clothing. They would be bare naked before their accusers. And then they would take that criminal and go to a height that was at least twice the criminal's height. So from 12 feet, perhaps, they would go to a height and they would drop that criminal from behind so that he would fall face forward. People would rush down after he's thrown off this height and they would rush down and turn him over to see if he was dead. And if he was, that was sufficient. If not, the second witness appointed by the mob would take a stone and drop it on his heart. And if this caused death, that would be sufficient. If not, then the congregation of witnesses would stone them, the criminal. This is the event that happened. So he's been thrown off a cliff, presumably according to Jewish custom. Well, first he was stripped naked of his clothes. Then he was dragged to a cliff. Then he was pushed off a cliff. And, and then one person stoned him. And now verse 59, we pick it up where it says, And as they were stoning him, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Now the utterance of Stephen at his death deliberately echoes the words of whom? Boy, this is the words of Jesus. Do you remember this? On the cross, with a loud voice, he cried out, Into your hands I commit my spirit. We read on in verse 60. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. 
Stephen's life ended in the same way it had been lived, in complete trust in God, believing that Jesus would take care of him in the life to come. It's been said that the fires uh, in olden days never made martyrs, it revealed them. No hurricane of persecution ever created martyrs, no one rushes to become a martyr, but in those cases of severe persecution, it does reveal the faith of martyrs. Stephen was a martyr before they stoned him, he was the martyr who sealed his testimony with his own blood. Now the text describes the passing of Stephen as tenderly as possible. Instead of saying that he died, Luke writes down that he fell asleep. I think with the idea that he woke up in a much better world, in much better company. The record of Stephen's defense and martyrdom is to give us uh, the last preaching of the early apostles in Jerusalem. Stephen's own history is the continuation of the history which began by God's revelation, and it leads to the preaching in Samaria and beyond that we'll uncover in a few weeks. We make our way to Acts chapter 8, and it says this, Saul approved of his execution. And there rose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all, what's that next word? Scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So we're introduced to a new character that we'll spend much of our time with in the next few weeks and months, and at this rate, we're going through the book of Acts years. Uh, We're introduced to Saul. Saul didn't do the executing himself necessarily, but it was Saul who stood there as a supervisor of the operation, you could say. In Philippians 3, Paul said of his life, before Jesus, that he was so zealous in his faith that he persecuted the church. And Saul's supervision of the execution of Stephen was just one example of this persecution. He consented to Stephen's death. But the English translation there is probably not strong enough. The idea behind Saul's action is to approve with the idea of being pleased with. Some people are reluctant persecutors. Saul was not one. He took pleasure in attacking Christians here. Saul, whose name would become Paul, later came to deeply regret the persecution of the church. He described himself as the least of the apostles, not worthy to be called an apostle, no doubt because of some of the actions he took. In fact, in Acts chapter 26, we'll get to, at some point, Paul describes what he regretted most. He said this, I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. Being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Paul didn't know it, but his actions actually furthered the gospel. Because of his persecution to those apostles on Acts, we enter phase two of the book of Acts, where not only is the church starting, but now it's scattering out through the region. The floodgates of persecution were now open against the Christian. Stephen was now an example to the religious elite. By the way, persecution still happens today. In a few months in the fall, we'll take a Sunday and devote it to speaking about and praying for the persecuted church worldwide. It still happens today, and it looks as though as when we uh, read the account of Stephen, I remember someone saying a couple weeks ago, saying something to the effect of, 
I know how Stephen's story ends, and I'm not looking forward to it. Because it can seem sad, even maddening, and maybe even meaningless at first glance. Here's a young minister of power, of eloquence, whose life was cut abruptly short. His ministry also seemed to end in failure. No one was immediately brought to faith because of this sermon. And all that came forth was more persecution against the church. But as you write these words down, I want you to think about the power of Stephen's life because the blood of the martyrs became the seed of the church. See, now Christians were forced to do what they had been reluctant to do, to get the message of Jesus out to surrounding regions, to declare once and for all the gospels for everyone. So we're not just going to stay in Jerusalem anymore. We're not just going to stay and and give the gospel only to Jews, but we're going to go out. We're going to scatter around. We're going to go to all the surrounding regions. And whether they're Jew or not, we're going to give them the opportunity to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul said it this way, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of salvation. This is the moment where we see the gospel now have this effect in the surrounding areas. Now this word scatter, everyone say that word, scatter. There's a couple different words, that, ways that this word is translated in the Greek, which is interesting. On one hand, it's the idea of scattering someone's ashes. Perhaps you've done this. Maybe over a body of water or a particular special uh, garden or a place on your property or someone's property where you scatter someone's ashes. And the idea of scattering ashes, if you think about the imagery, is that um, our uh, our life started from dirt and now... We are nothing but dust, right? And so you go and scatter ashes. And I've seen it done when you, um, if you scatter ashes in a body of water for a while, you can see the remnants of the ash that go onto the water. But at some point, what ends up happening? It disappears. You can do the same thing in a garden or a piece of land or property, wherever you might scatter those ashes. And so that's one way the Bible translates this word scatter. The other way that the Bible uses this word scatter is the idea of scattering seeds in a field. Where you scatter and you don't see the effects right away. But if you give it time, what ends up happening? Something grows from it. This is the idea from the Greek word here that the men and women were now scattered abroad. And in time, what would happen is the gospel would bring forth results. We read on in Acts chapter 8, just a couple of verses, we see the uh, way that Stephen's life ended in a commentary on Saul. Verse 2 says this, devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. Now, seemingly, it appears that the Jews were horrified at Stephen's murder. And perhaps this was Luke's way of reminding that not all Jewish people were the enemies of Christianity. Now, since Jewish law prohibited open mourning for someone that had been executed, this record of people making great lamentation was perhaps their way of repenting what they had just done. Verse 3, as opposed to Saul's reaction... Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. This word ravage means he viciously attacked Christians. 
both men and women. The tense of that word ravage means uh, he ravaged and kept on ravaging. He did it in perpetuity. Church, we will die doing something and we will die being someone. I think it's important to take inventory and evaluate our own lives on what our life cost and value is. Do you remember Stephen's last words? How did he use his last breath according to the end of Acts 7? Go back, verse 60. Look at it. Look at verse 60. It says this. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. If you remember the words of Jesus on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. His dying breath, Stephen's, was a prayer of forgiveness. Now here's the thing. I imagine a lot of people were praying for Saul about this time. I just don't think they were praying forgiveness for him. Right? It was probably a prayer that maybe you and I have had in our own lives about people that might be in a power, a, a position of power that we don't think they should be in. And so perhaps they prayed a prayer like this, Lord, eliminate this person by all means necessary. Lord, a well-timed funeral would be prudent. Lord, if you could just get rid of this person, I think our whole community, our nation, whatever, would shift. Lord, this is war. This is a war against our faith. This is a war against what we believe in. Lord, do the right thing. Eliminate this person. Yeah, I imagine they were praying a lot in those first six, seven chapters of Acts. And yet God chose to answer this prayer in Acts 7, verse 60. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. I love that God answered this prayer. And so he used this, I believe, Stephen's prayer, answered it, and used it to touch the heart of a young man who energetically and wholeheartedly agreed with his stoning. And the man Saul did not know he was being prayed for, and he did not know that Stephen's prayer would be answered. And I feel like when we get to heaven, we should say a breath of thanksgiving for Stephen for blessing us with the ministry of Saul, who would become Paul. God, I believe, heard Stephen's prayer. Paul is the evidence of it. And we have no idea... Uh, what God is using in the midst of our most difficult times. Augustine said, he's an early church uh, father, I, you could say, Augustine said this, if Stephen had not prayed, the church would not have had Paul. I don't know if I'd go to that extent necessarily, because God uses and works in a lot of different ways. But I think the most impressive thing here is that Stephen displayed the same forgiving attitude that Jesus had on the cross. He asked God to forgive his accusers and made the promises loudly and publicly. 
Now, here's the thing. We could end today's service a lot of different ways. We could talk about Corey Ten Boom. How many of you know the story vaguely of Corey Ten Boom? It's an amazing story. I highly encourage you to Google it and read it or listen to the audio book of Corey Ten Boom's life. An amazing story of willing to die for her faith in unbelievable circumstances. Uh, I could end today's message with the story of Jim Elliott and Elizabeth Elliott and the missionaries and, and how their lives were uh, sacrificed, Jim's and the other missionaries, for the cause of Jesus. I think last year we, I told the story of the song, I Have Decided to Follow Jesus and the, the, the Indian, uh, the, man, the, the, the man in India whose faith he began to just recite as he was being executed and he uttered those words. This is how I want to end today's message though. Just for a moment, I want you to close your Bible and close your notes and free up both of your hands. And if you're at home, I'd encourage you to do this. If you're listening to this later in the week, just do this for just a moment. Put your phone aside, put your Bible down, put your notes aside. I want you to open up your hands out, just right in front of you. And close one of the fists. We have an opportunity to go through life holding things with an open hand or with a closed fist. We have relationships that we can go through life with an open hand or a closed fist. We have uh, hurts in our past that we can hold on tightly to or we can hold with an open hand. We have uh, political issues. Can I get there for a second? We have political issues that you get to choose how you hold them, with an open hand or with a closed fist. We have um, um, relationships in our community we get to hold with an open hand or a closed fist. And in the moment of difficulty, in the moment of uh, this panic that settled in for Stephen, Stephen decided to hold his life with an open hand. He says, Lord, in your hands, I commit my spirit. Father, forgive them. Don't hold this charge against them. You know what happens when we hold on to our life so tightly? We lose it. You know what happens when we hold on to hurt and wounds so tightly in our life and we fail to let them go? The strength it takes to hold tightly those things close to our hearts end up costing us emotional bandwidth, spiritual bandwidth, physical toll. And before you know it, if you hold your hands in a fist and you tighten them and you hold them long enough, your hands become, they start shaking and you cannot continue that way much longer. And it starts affecting other parts of your body. I did this the other day at my desk just to see how long I could hold tightly my fist. And here's the thing. You'll pass out at one point. I think God wants us to go through life holding the temporary things of this life with open hands. Realizing that the prayer, into your hands I commit my spirit, is not a prayer that we pray at the end of our life. 
but it's a prayer we pray at the beginning of our day, right? And so you get up in the morning and you say, Father, with open hands this week, I commit my spirit to you. All the breath that I have left, I'm committing to you. In fact, I'm holding this day with an open hand. So when that interruption comes, I'm going to choose to believe this interruption is going to be okay. When, uh, when the distraction comes in my day today, I'm going to choose to hold it with an open hand, recognizing that if I hold it too tightly, I end up losing it altogether. It's like when you go through life and um, we hold on to things in our life hoping that it hurts other people in theirs. And so I think it's amazing that Stephen here in this moment not only commits his spirit, whatever breath he has left, he commits, but also in that same breath he says, Father, forgive those. Lay this not at their charge. And so what are you holding with a closed fist today that should be open? What are the relationships that you're holding onto in such a way that you're grasping the air out of them? And you need to submit that relationship to the Lord. What is the issue or the conversation that you're holding so tightly close to your chest that you can't have a reasonable discussion with someone without blowing up? What is it in your life that you can just hold? Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you made a decision for Christ or would like prayer with someone from our church family, we would love to connect with you. You can message us on Facebook by searching Roseburg First Christian Church, or you can email us directly at roseburgfcc at gmail.com. In addition, if you're listening to this message on Apple or Spotify, we invite you to like, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast and share it on social media so others can be blessed as well. God bless you and have a beautiful day.